us this morning. Wonderful time of singing. Well, good morning and welcome uh, to Grace Bible Church. This these past couple of days have been pretty wonderful, haven't they? With the the cooler temperatures, I was out walking last night, and I had a short sleeve shirt on and shorts, and I actually was a little bit chilled. It's seventy three degrees. That's life in Florida. 73, and I was a little bit chilled. Well, during the announcements, I mentioned the need for service. I want to really convey my thankfulness for those who have been serving. Uh, Phil and I have been in much discussion uh, regarding the future of the ministry here at Grace Bible Church, and we, we plan to continue to meet and discuss the future of this ministry, and we're praying about our next steps as a church. And we are extremely excited that there are things on the horizon that I think that will, you will enjoy and to, to have happen. One of those potentially is that I would be coming on full time. Uh, we are extremely close, I think close enough that we can talk about it more, uh, that to finalizing those plans to bring me on uh, full time. Such really is the ebb and flow of the church, of a church plant. There are, are times of loss. And there are times of gain, just the way it, it works out. Many times those things come in pairs. And so we are looking forward to the, what the Lord would have for us here at Grace Bible Church. In any case, I am hopeful that you will continue to pray for us and pray for this body uh, as we anticipate what Christ will accomplish through this church as we finish 2020. Thank you, Lord. For finishing 2020. I'll be glad when this one's over. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Actually, 2020 hasn't been all that bad. Hasn't been all that good either. But, but as we finish 2020 and look forward to 2021, well, the Bible says, uh, God's Word says, if we say that we have fellowship with Him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Have you ever wondered about the call to holiness for the Christian? Why does God expect us as Christians to live a life set apart for Christ? Why doesn't He just save or uh, take us to heaven? These days there are a lot, there's a lot of confusion regarding how we should live considering the glorious truths of the gospel. So we're talking about the positional but we're also now talking about the practical. How should we live considering who we are in Christ? Well, I believe our current passage will help us, continue to help us understand how and why we are to live holy lives. Let me pray for the sermon this morning, and then I'll read our passage, uh, Ephesians 4, 17-24, and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we again come to you specifically at this moment, praying for this sermon, praying for the preacher, that you would give him clarity of mind and focus, that he would lay aside all pride, that you would increase and he would decrease. May your word be above all else this morning. In Christ's name, amen. As we find ourselves 
continuing in our study of Ephesians. Ephesians 4, starting in verse 17. I'll read from 17 through 24. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard Him and have been taught in Him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of truth. As we continue our study of Ephesians, we find ourselves in the middle of Ephesians chapter 4. Now normally I reserve what I would call a major review for transitions in the text, but for us to fully understand, I believe for us to fully understand the text in verses 17 to 24, I think we need to invest some time of review, and I want us to look at some further connections in the text. In his letter to Ephesus, the Apostle Paul has reminded the church of the glorious truths of the gospel. He's reminded them, he's reminded them of what he had taught them during his stay in the city. In chapters 1 and 2, Paul teaches the eternal doctrinal truths which should shape the life of every believer. In those chapters, he reminded the church that the Father has blessed every Christian with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. Every believer has been chosen in Him before the foundation of the world. We have been adopted as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself. In Christ, we have redemption through His blood. In Him, we have been forgiven of our sins. In Him, every believer has been raised up and seated with Him in the heavenlies. We've been saved by grace through faith. That is a gift of God, so that no man may boast. Now in this letter, Paul also reminded the church at Ephesus that at salvation, they had been seated, they had been seated, or sealed that is, in the Holy Spirit and placed in the body of Christ. Miraculously, both Jews and Gentiles had been made into a new creation and placed into the church, which is Christ's body. Paul's epistle to Ephesus helps us better understand, then, the purpose of the church, which Jesus had promised to build during His earthly mission. We've seen all that as we've continued through this study. Importantly, the mission of the church to make disciples of the nations, or importantly, that is, Uh, This letter illuminates the mission of the church to make disciples of the nation. For Christ, this command that He gave in Matthew 28, 19 and 20, and in Acts 1, 8. Now, if you're critically thinking about this, I believe you'll ask the following questions. If we have been saved by Christ and placed in the church for the purpose of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth, 
and for teaching other disciples about life in Christ, how then shall we live with one another in Christ? How should our lives be shaped considering the glorious truth of the gospel? How will we conduct ourselves, how should we conduct ourselves, in the household of God, which Paul calls the pillar and the support of the truth? Now, I believe that the answers to these questions lie in the final three chapters of Ephesians. Now, as we read and study Paul's letter, we should recognize that he leans upon a vast body of knowledge which he had already, or that he had already taught to the church while he was in Ephesus. That is an important point. Now, at this time in our study, I think it's worthwhile for us to review some of the details of Paul's time in Ephesus to better understand his exhortation in chapter 4 to the church. Now, let's work our way backwards as we try to better understand his time in Asia Minor. Now, as we have learned in this study, when Paul wrote this particular letter, he had been imprisoned in Jerusalem for five years. In Acts chapter 20, on his journey to Jerusalem, where he would be arrested and and imprisoned, he dropped by to see the Ephesian elders. At that time, when he was visiting with the elders, he said he told them that during his time at Ephesus, he didn't shrink from declaring to them the whole purpose of God. That's Acts chapter 20, verse 27. So Paul makes a critically important point regarding his time and his purpose when he was in Ephesus. During his time there, he carefully taught the church the eternal purposes of God in Christ. This included the purpose of the church and the glories of the gospel. And so during his visit, as he was headed to Jerusalem, he reminded them that he had courageously taught them in the face of much opposition. And he knew, this is key, he knew at that time, this is five years before he wrote this letter, he knew at that time that that opposition would only grow and it would only be more emboldened after he departed. Therefore, he warned them in Acts 20, 28, he warned them and he says, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock. He's telling this to the elders of the church, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. He says, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So he reminded them that his departure would in fact encourage false teachers. It would encourage them to reveal themselves to the flock. They would rise up. He says in in chapter 20, verse 29, he says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. So at the time of Paul's writing this letter, I I would argue it's reasonable to believe that the wolves had begun to make themselves known to the flock. It's probable that they were creating divisions within the church. They were trying to weaken the church, to distract it from its mission, to make and teach true disciples of Christ. And in chapter 20, verse 31, Paul gives a one-sentence description of his ministry in Ephesus. And I would argue 
I would argue that he wanted the church, he wanted the elders that were left there, the pastors and teachers, the shepherds and teachers, he wanted them, he desired for them to replicate his ministry after he's gone. This is, again, five years before he wrote the letter of Ephesians, as he was visiting them. He says this, Therefore, be on alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, For three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. So Paul stayed in Ephesus for three full years, teaching them the glories of Christ and teaching them about the redemption that they had received through His blood. The church at Ephesus had been purchased with the blood of Christ, the blood of the cross, through which they had received forgiveness. So Paul exhorted them to live in holiness and in unity as they continued this ministry he started, he started when he was there. So Paul, in, in Acts chapter 20, he's saying, look, this is what I did. This is what I did with you. I want you to continue this. I want you to continue to live in holiness. I want you to continue to live in unity and peace. And this is how you do it. That's Ephesians. So what did that ministry look like? Well, earlier in, earlier in Acts 19, if you want to turn there, you can. We find a further description of, of the apostles' ministry in Ephesus. In verses 1-10, through 10, Luke describes Paul's arrival in Ephesus. When he came to the city, there were some disciples there who had been baptized into John the Baptist's baptism. But they had not received the Holy Spirit. And in chapter 19, verse 4, Paul told this group, he said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in Him who was coming after Him, that is, in Jesus. And when they heard this, so that when they heard the full, true gospel, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands upon him, verse 6, the, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. Now what we see there is that they had... They didn't understand, they didn't know that, that the Holy Spirit had been sent at Pentecost. And so therefore, they were still following John, John the Baptist. When Paul came, he preached Christ to them. And they received the Holy Spirit. And this, this receiving of the Holy Spirit was proof, was proof that they truly were Christians. They truly had to turn to Christ. They truly received the Holy Spirit, if you will. Now let's pick up in verse 7. In verse 7, it says there were in all about 12 men. So, so these 12 men and their families, you would assume, one would assume, must have formed the core of the church at Ephesus. Paul poured his life and doctrine into these 12 men. Now it's amazing when you consider what they were able to accomplish from Ephesus and the power of the Spirit. Look at verse 8. This is Acts 19.8. And he entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly. This is Paul. Continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. He was preaching Christ. He was preaching the gospel in the synagogue. Look at verse 9. But when some who were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way, so he took the gospel to the masses, to, to the synagogue, to the Jewish people. So they began to speak evil of the way before the people. He withdrew from them, and he took the disciples, those who had had turned to Christ, he took the disciples 
and he, and he began reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. Verse 10, this took place for two years, so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. That's important, both Jews and Greeks. So Paul went and he began teaching. He began teaching. So that after, after these people began speaking evil, Paul took the twelve along with any of the other disciples who may have joined them, and he began to diligently teach them the things of Christ. This part of, of Paul's ministry must have t- took place for two years. Can you imagine uh, being a fly on the wall during those sessions where Paul is intensely teaching, admonishing with tears? He's teaching these people. They would have been, those times would have been, the discussions would have been, must have been incredibly intense and fruitful. Must have been hard even. Now, you should recognize a few ties back to Paul's letters, letter to the Ephesians. First, during this time, the gospel spread throughout the region because of Paul's teaching. You should remember that Ephesus was one of seven churches in Asia Minor. We have discussed and concluded that Ephesus was probably the hub for these churches. The churches at Colossae and Hierapolis were the fruit of Paul's ministry in Asia Minor as well. Now, some of the seven churches mentioned in Revelations 2 and 3 may have also been planted during Paul's ministry in Ephesus. Ephesus, as we've all already discussed a few times, is, is the connecting point uh, for the churches in the east and the churches in the west. Therefore, <coughs> we can conclude that Paul recognized the tr- strategic importance of this church. That's why I believe, and I would argue, that's why he spent three years there. He was pouring himself into these people because he knew that it was incredibly important for the ministry of the gospel. I have also argued that this letter was written specifically to the church at Ephesus. More specifically, Paul probably was writing with these core disciples in his mind as he's he's been with them from the beginning. Some have argued that the letter has has an impersonal feel to it. They argue that he was probably not writing to Ephesus because of that. But I would say that it, was, that it has a very personal undercurrent. He knew them so well that he could cut to the chase, so to speak. He didn't have to do all the, all the introductions and all that stuff. He could go right to, the, right to the truth because he'd been with them for so long and he had taught them for so long that he knew them and he could cut right to the truth and he could say, this is what I need you to know. This is what I want to remind you of. Beloved, it it is reasonable to think that some of these people, some of these men may have come under the influence of the false teachers after Paul left, and that the others were growing weary. Or perhaps some in the church had been affected by the false teaching, and Paul's men were growing weary. They, they They were losing steam. They were probably fighting great discouragement because their shepherd, because Paul the man who had personally taught them during those years was now in prison for preaching the gospel. He's, he's, he's in jail. He's not able to, 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 to move freely. And so these guys are probably very discouraged. Therefore, I would say that, the, that Paul wrote the letter as an encouragement to the church at Ephesus with an intentions of it being circulated among the other churches in Asia Minor. This is, there's a second tie back to the letter. 
back to the letter of Ephesians. In, in Acts 19.10, Luke takes great pains to point out that the word of the Lord had spread among Jews and Greeks. In, in Acts 20.21, 20, Luke also recorded that Paul's ministry was one of testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. This reference, these references tie back to the letter of Ephesians. Paul had taken great pains to call for the church at Ephesus to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's Ephesians 4.3. Based on Paul's emphasis in the letter, we can surmise that, the, that one of the source, if not the primary source of division in the church, was this divide between Jews and Greeks, or Jews and Gentiles, that is. This, this divide in Ephesians 2, 11 through 18, he took great pains to show that Christ himself is our peace, that Christ has made the, the Jew into a new man. He has made the Gentile into a new man. He's made, we are a new creation in Christ. He's abolished the enmity, the hate between Jews and, and Gentiles in his flesh at the cross. Most likely, the false teachers were trying to use this past divide between Jews and Greeks as a wedge to force present divisions within the church. It was it probably, because it's, a, it's, it's normal to do this, it was probably by adding things to the gospel, such as circumcision. And I would argue that this is the rationale for Paul to call the church to the worthy walk in Chapter 4, verse 1. This is the reason Paul emphasizes humility and gentleness and patience and tolerance for one another and love within the church. That's 4.2. This is also why Paul reminds them of the, the oneness of their calling. The fact that they were called as one. In verses 4 through 6, there's one body, there's one spirit, just as also you're called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. You get the point that Paul was addressing division. And again, this division probably came from this division between, uh, this past division between Jew and Greek or Jew and Gentile. It also sheds light on Paul's discussion of the gifts of the Spirit in verses 7-11. through 11, Christ gave spiritual gifts to build the church in the unity of the faith for the purpose of building maturity within the body. This maturity and unity protect the body of Christ from error and from division. There's a third tie back to the letter from, a, from Acts 19 to the letter. We should recognize that both Jews and Gentiles have been called into the newness of life, uh, into this new creation, walking as a new man. So Paul exhorts them not to fall back into the old patterns of life. For the Jews, this would have included their proud traditions, the fact that they, who they were from, where they were from. They were sons of Abraham, if you will. For the Gentiles, this would have included living in the lust of their flesh, living in our sensuality. It's especially crucial as we approach our text in verse 17, which we started last week. We must be aware that pursuing these old patterns of life, 
causes division within the body of Christ. As Christians, again, we have been called, you have been called to newness of life. We have been called to live according to a new standard. We should call it, we ought to call it, the standard of the King. King Jesus. We have been called to be set apart from this world. We have been called to be set apart from worldliness. We are now under the law of Christ. In Galatians 6.2, Paul called the Galatian church to fulfill the law of Christ. He also spoke of the law of Christ in 1 Corinthians 9.21. And I would argue that James refers to Jesus' new law in James 2.8. He says this, If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law, that would be the law of the kingdom, the law of the king, according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. If you do this, you are doing well. Of course, that verse refers to Jesus' teaching on the two greatest commandments which fulfill the entire law and prophets. In Matthew 22, 37, Jesus said, You shall love your Lord, your God, the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments, on these two commandments, depend the whole law and prophets. Beloved, we must recognize that these two commands encompass the entire law and prophets. Every line, every line in the Mosaic law was based on love of God and love of neighbor. Therefore, therefore, we must conclude that loving God and loving neighbor includes walking according to Jesus' commandments given to His people and recorded in the New Testament. We will call it or Paul has called it the law of Christ. We must recognize that walking in in disobedience to Christ's command always caused chaos, dissension, and division within the body of Christ. Walking in obedience to Christ's commands results in unity and peace and oneness, both with God and with our fellow Christian. Now, with the backdrop of this Jew-Gentile division, along with the call of every Christian to obey Christ, let's return to our verses in 17-24. Now, last week we started this section with the first command. In these verses, Paul describes two main commands for the walk of holiness for the believer. Again, we studied the first one last week. You are not, you are not to live as the heathen ones. Said another way, you are not to live as the Gentiles or walk as the Gentiles also walk. Now, we looked at verses 17 through 19 last week. Here Paul reminds the Ephesian church of their former lives. Now we have to remember that most of the Ephesian church, much of the Ephesian church would have been made up of Gentiles. So he reminds them of the former lives in which they lived in the flesh. In their former lives before Christ, they had hardened their hearts toward God. They had suppressed the truth of God in unrighteousness. Therefore, they were ignorant of the things of God and they were excluded from the life of God. They were separate. 
They had no hope in this world, Paul says. They walked in the futility of their minds. Said another way, their minds were useless. They, they were useless for the understanding of the things of God. We talked about this morning in the men's study where people will do things that are wrong and they'll make, they'll make it seem right in their own minds. They do what is right in their own eyes, is what Judges says. What people, what people do, they, their, their minds can't understand the things of God. As such, they practice sensuality and impurity, and yet they were never satisfied. So it just they, they pro- progressed from bad to worse. They were in this ever downward spiral. Paul warns them as Christians not to practice these things. He exhorts them not to walk in these ways again. They are to completely avoid these sinful, sexual desires which are antithetical to the ways of Christ. They are now in Christ. And these practices are not fit for the kingdom of God or its King Jesus, whom the Christian is called to proclaim. Now that's that's important that we understand that the Christian is called to proclaim the name of Christ. Therefore, the Christian is called to walk called to walk as Christ walked. As Christians, we've been warned not to walk as the Gentiles walked, as the heathen ones, as you, if you use my outline, walked. Now we've seen this is the negative command. This leads us next to the next command for the walk of holiness. That we are to, we are to, we are to live as the holy ones. As the holy ones. And there's three main points under this section. We are to live, we are to walk, that is, in conformance to the truth, or in conformance with the truth. Secondly, we are to walk in in congruity with renewal. And third, we are to walk, and we've talked about this already, in consistency to the law of Christ. Now, before we get into our text, I need to tell you that I've taken a lot of time to do a lot of review and give you a lot of connections this morning. So we're only going to be able to look at verses 20 and 21. We are to walk in consist or we are to walk in, in conformance to the truth. Now I've given you the outline for this entire section from, from 17 to 32, so you can see where we're going in the text. So under the main heading, you are to live as the holy ones. Let's look at the first description of this walk of holiness. You are to walk in conformance to the truth. Look at your text in verse 20. Now Paul has gone through and he said, you are not to walk as the Gentiles walk. And then he describes how they walk, which is uh, horrific. Then he says in verse 20, but you did not, you did not learn Christ in this way. Now said another way, Paul wanted to remind them of their shared past. This ties back, and this is the reason I took pains to go through the Acts 20 and the Acts 19 connection, because I wanted you to see that Paul, I believe, is referring back to that time. He spent countless hours teaching them concerning the Christ Jesus, concerning the Messiah. He had, they had been taught to walk in Christ. They had been taught to obey His commands and. Matthew 28, 20, Jesus directed His disciples to teach, to teach 
the disciples, the, the ones that they would share the gospel with, the, the ones that the nations, to teach them to observe all his commands. Paul had labored for the purpose of teaching them about Jesus. He had admonished them with tears. Therefore, he could call them, he could personally call them, to live in conformance to the truths that he knew that they had been taught, because he had personally taught them. For them to live any other way would be incongruent with Paul's teaching. It would be incongruent with the truth. Which, by the way, is Christ Himself. In John 14, 15, Jesus said to the disciples, If you love Me, you will keep My commandments. Therefore, our true love for Christ is demonstrated in our desire to keep His commandments. Your walk of righteousness and holiness is crucial, absolutely crucial to your ministry and shows your love for the one whom you proclaim. You can't proclaim the gospel, you can't preach the gospel if your life does not match it. In the words of Steve Lawson, he says this. It's funny, I saw this quote this past week in my Facebook feed. It's good for something. It says this, Your godliness is more important than your giftedness. Your maturity is more important than your ministry. Your character is more important than your career. Who you are is more important than where you serve. Your purity is more important than your preaching. Your attitude is more important than attendance. End quote. I think we get the picture. Paul had personally taught these people. Therefore, he was confident that they knew how to live in Christ. He was confident in the teaching that they had received, and he knew that, they, they, that he could call them not to walk like the Gentiles, but to walk in consistency and congruency with the truth. Now we need to make sure we're on the same page here. Paul's not talking about learning factual knowledge. We're certainly called to learn doctrine. In Romans 16, 17, Paul said that the church at Rome had been taught doctrine. So that's facts. We talked this morning in the men's study that it's good to know systematic theology so that you can, you can know the boundaries. You can know what is orthodox and what isn't orthodox as you, as you study and consider the Bible. But just learning things about Christ is not sufficient, according to Paul. Paul here is referring to learning about the person of Christ. He speaks of getting to know Christ personally. Christ had been preached to them. And they had received Him. They were now Christians. And from that time forward, they were to get to know Christ as a person. As believers, beloved. You and I are to continually to learn Christ, to learn Jesus. But here's the deal, if you will. He is alive. He is seated at the right hand of God. We have been given direct access to Him through prayer and His Word. Beloved, we, are, we, we serve Christ 
who is alive and listens to our prayer. He is intimately involved in our lives. He is here today walking amongst us. If you don't believe that, read Revelation 1-3. He knows exactly what we're doing. He is intimately involved in our lives. He lives within us. We don't just learn things about Him. We don't just learn His law. Those, though those things are important, we learn Him. And we learn what pleases Him. For those of you who are married, when you were dating and or courting, my wife's been talking about this quite often in our own home, you didn't just get to know your spouse's vitals, right? You know, she was born on this date in this city. She weighs this much. Her blood pressure and pulse are this. I mean, that would be, if, that, if, that's, if that's your idea of getting to know your spouse, she's not going to be your, or he or she's not going to be your spouse, right? That's not how you get to know your spouse. You don't just, you don't just learn facts. It doesn't work that way. You truly work to know them. And you, you, you get to know them in the courting process. And, and you get married. And, and hopefully you'll continue to try to get to know them. And, and to, to work to know them. You want to find out their likes and their dislikes. You want to find out their hopes and their dreams. Even their fears. You, you want to memorize their patterns. What they do and how they do it. How they don't let their food touch. Or how they brush their teeth. Or whatever it is that you they do right all that weird stuff but you love them for it you get to know them right you study them and hopefully you do this for the rest of your marriage your marriage won't be very good if you don't will it won't be a very good marriage if you're not always trying to learn more and to grow more as christians we study the word of God to know our Lord. We spend time communing with Him in prayer to know Him in a personal way. Said another way, as Christians, we order our lives in such a way that pleases Him. We live holy lives indicating our love for Him. In the words of Spurgeon, he says this, we must be, be holy because this is the only sound evidence that we have a saving faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Said another way, said another way, we must be holy because it's the only way that we know that we know Him. Because we're set apart to Him. We're sanctified to Him. Look at verse 21, Ephesians 4, 21. Paul says, If indeed you have heard Him and have been taught in Him just as the truth is in Jesus... As we've seen, and again, this is why we went through this. Paul had intimate knowledge of the content of the teaching they had received. He was the one, he was the one who labored to present them complete in Christ. I would argue that the sense here is that he was certain what they had heard. He, was, he is certain that they had heard the true gospel of Jesus Christ, and he was sure of the content of the teaching. Therefore, he could call them back to what he had taught them. Again, he, he could call them not to return to the way of the Gentiles. Again, we must remember that the Lord 
or the Lord, that the Paul had not been present in Ephesus for several years. Much, much had happened. Undoubtedly, false teachers were causing chaos and division in his absence. They were probably ramping up this division between Jew and Gentile. So that uh, this chaos was happening. Without a doubt, the false teachers' lives didn't line up with the teaching of the true gospel. They, they were probably negatively influencing the people in the body of Christ. So Paul called them to walk in the truth. Back in verse 21, they had heard Christ and that they had heard the effectual call of Christ. They had responded to the gospel. They were truly Christians. Jesus himself said that, that his sheep hear his voice and he knows them and they follow him. He doesn't speak in an audible voice, but He speaks to us through His Word. And as Christians, we learn Him because the truth is in Him. Now, I want to be crystal clear here. Christian, you have been called to holiness. But that holiness becomes hypocrisy if we forget that it's God who has changed us. That holiness becomes hypocrisy if we forget that it is God who has changed us. I think that's the reason why Paul took pains to explain that we are saved by grace through faith and that that is a gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one can boast. Now, I think John 17, the high priestly prayer in John 17, is a key to understanding this. If you want to turn in your text to John 17. We're going to pick up in verse 13. Again, we're picking up in the middle of Jesus' high priestly prayer. Verse 13, Jesus says, But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word. Now he's speaking of the disciples. He's praying to the Father. He says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of this world, even as I am not of the world. Now, you may recall that last week we discussed what it means to be in Christ. We mentioned that there are two aspects of being in Christ. The first is positional. As an example of this would be Paul's assertion that we've been raised up and seated in the heavenlies in Christ. Another example of this positional place that we have in Christ is Jesus' declaration that His disciples are not of this world. The inference is, is that we are now positionally in Christ, in Him. We have been removed from the jurisdiction of this world and have been given a new ruler and a new king with new laws. But this being in Christ is also practical. Now look back at John 17, 15. He says this, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. So after Christ saved us, We've been given a new ruler in Christ, but He has left us to, be, to remain in the world which is still under con- the control of the evil one. Now what we have to understand is without protection from Christ, with, without protection from God, 
this world would be or is incredibly dangerous to the Christian. Now we should note as well that the church, tying this back to Ephesians, that the church is Christ's main method of protection for the Christian. Now look back at verse 16. John 17, 16. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Now what we have to realize is that the word translated sanctify could also mean to make holy or to set apart. As the, as a, the believer is exposed to the word of God, God uses it to make us holy and to set us apart for his use. That's, that's crucial for us to understand. In 1 Corinthians 6.20, Paul says, You have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. He's talking about using your body in a way that is pleasing to the Lord, specifically talking about how we use our body sexually. Back in John 17.18, Jesus gives us the purpose of this sanctification or this being made holy. He says this, As you sent me into the world, so this is the Father who has sent the Son into the world, I also have sent them into the world. Now you've heard the phrase that we are in the world but not of it, right? People say that all the time. What people mean by that statement is that as believers we recognize that we are here in the world, but we are not to take part in worldliness, especially those things which would defile us. But I think we have to think of it, and I think we have to realize that we are on mission in the world. That Christ has sent us into the world on mission. What is that mission? That mission is to proclaim the King. think we should recognize that Jesus's emphasis is a little different he sanctifies us and with the truth so that we can be sent into the world he does this for the purpose of making more disciples we are charged to live then according to the law of our new kingdom we let me just say it this way we can't expect to win the world to Christ when we live and look just like them. That it, it doesn't follow. If we live according to the world's standards, according to worldliness, then, then what do we have that's different than they already have? Except a weak imitation of what they already have. Church needs to live in holiness. J.C. Ryle says this, you want to be called holy, he, he says this, I can't see how any man deserves to be called holy who willfully allows himself in sins and is not humbled and ashamed because of them. Beloved, here's the, here's the deal. When we live unholy lives, we are not useful to the king. When we live unholy lives, when we live worldly lives, when we walk as the Gentiles walk, we are not useful to the king. To the king. Look back at 
chapter 17, verse 19. John 17, 19. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. You see, Jesus was completely set apart for the Father's will so that believers would be set apart by the truth of His Word. As such, we are set apart to do the will of Christ, which is to make disciples of the nations and to teach them His commandments. Christian, you must recognize that if you're going to call yourself a Christian, if you're going to be a Christian, truly set apart, then you must recognize that you have been set apart for the use of Christ. That's why we walk in holiness. We do so to please Him, to please our King. Look back at 1720. I do not ask on behalf of those alone, but for, but all, for those also who believe in me through their word. So he's speaking of the future. He's speaking of us. He's speaking of that they had witnessed what they had witnessed the life of Christ. They wrote it down in the pages of the New Testament as witness to us. We are now using the New Testament to 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 learn about Christ, and and now he's speaking of us as well. So it extends into the full church age. He says this in verse twenty one that they may all be one. There's that oneness again, right? That unity. The unity of Christ. The oneness of of God. Even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us. And here's the point. Verse 21. So that the world may believe that you sent me that's the point every true christian living in the church age the church age has been placed in the body of christ we have been made one with him so that the world such that the world may believe that the father has truly sent the son he is the savior said another way The message is not believable when we live as hypocrites saying that we love Christ but showing in our actions that we love the world. Let me say that again. The gospel message is not believable when you and I live as hypocrites saying that we love Christ but showing in our actions that we love the world. This type of life is exemplified in the following quote by Spurgeon. He says this, I have now concentrated, i say that again, I have now concentrated all my prayers into one. And that one prayer is this, that I may die to self and live wholly to Him. Beloved, that's why we do so. We live wholly to Him so that we might be useful to Him so that He might advance His kingdom through us. Church, we cannot get around it. We are not to live as the world lives. 
We are not to walk like the Gentiles walk. We are not to harden ourselves to the truths of God's Word, which leads to ignorance and futility of our mind. We are not to suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness and live in sensuality. But we are to walk like Christ. We are to walk like the Holy One. First description of this walk is we are to walk in truth. In congruence with the truth. Let me give you some very practical help in this way. You should regularly spend time in the Word of God. You should have a regular reading plan. Reading every day. It's not legalism. If you want to get to know your Lord, then you will spend time with your Lord. Just like, again, being married. You want to get to know your spouse, you spend time with your spouse. You get to know them. Not only should you have a regular reading plan, but you should have a regular Bible study plan. You should spend time not just reading. So the reading plan would be large chunks of large chunks of the Bible that you read. But you needed to spend time studying as well. Taking smaller chunks of the Bible and learning and growing through studying that. Putting, having a Bible study plan in place that you regularly spend time studying His Word. Secondly, you must regularly spend time in prayer. Now there's the constant communion with God. The constant understanding that He's there. The constant uh, talking to Him uh, in communion with Him all the time. But you also need to spend time praying. I've set apart times praying where you pray. Many times I go walk, and that's what I do many times is I pray as I'm walking. Even something like that. Others have their prayer closet. Whatever it is, what, whatever works for you in that way, you need to have a set apart time where you commune with your Lord. Specifically around His Word. The Word of God should drive your prayer life. It certainly keeps you from treating God like He's a vending machine. You know, the I want this, I want that type of prayers. But it makes you pray according to His Word. Third, most of you I hope have this, but you should be a part of a solid Bible teaching church. You're a part of the body of Christ. There's the universal body of Christ, but, but the local church is the visible expression of the body of Christ. This is how we are part of the body of Christ physically. We're physical beings. We're limited in space. And so therefore, we have to be a part of a local expression of the body of Christ. You need to sit under the regular ministry of the Word of God. You need to, to hear the preaching of the Word of God on a weekly basis. Which means you need to be here. You need to pre be present. You need to give yourself to accountability. Make yourself known. 
Join the men's Bible study. Join the women's Bible study. Uh, go to people's homes. Have people in your home. You need to get to know people and, and give yourself to relationships. You need to give yourself to serve. It goes back again to Ephesians 4, where Paul says that, that we are to use our gifts for the equipping of the body. I, I'm as a as pastor, teacher, and equipping you for the work of the service. But you're to use your gifts to serve. And it continues that way. It is in these ways that you will learn Christ. And you will learn to walk in His truth. Now let me, let me finish by speaking to those who don't know Christ. I know that there are some in this room who have not turned to the Lord Jesus. They are walking in the flesh. They are, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. I beg you. I beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. To call out to Him. To be saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You are sitting here today, and, and Paul says in Ephesians 4, but you have not heard Christ or not learned Christ in this way. You're sitting here today, and you don't even know Him. You have not turned to Him. You're living according to the flesh. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. I beg you, to believe in the, the work of Christ on the cross. I beg you to trust in the shed blood of Christ who sacrificed for your sins. He suffered the wrath of the Father so that you might not have to. But if you trust in your own work, you'll stand before a holy God You'll stand before a holy God in the future and you will stand according to what you have done. And if you're honest with yourself, you'll know that God has to judge you. I beg you. I beg you, don't stand there in your own strength. But trust in Christ. Believer, believer, I am convinced I'm convinced that your desire is to be pleasing to your Lord. Go, go, and be holy, set apart for Him through His work. Heavenly Father, we thank You this morning again. Lord, we pray that You would have been glorified by the preaching of the Word. Pray for the listener that the Holy Spirit would illumine the Word of God that maybe some of what has been said will be useful to you. Father, we thank you for this time in Christ's name. Amen.